Welcome to Body Liberation for All, the only podcast dedicated to bringing you all the self-help with none of the white or het supremacy. This show is dedicated to helping BIPOC and LGBTQIA plus people live happier, healthier, and easier lives. If you're a person of color or you like people of color, if you're part of my queer fam or you happen to love us because you know a good thing when you see it, then this is for you. If this isn't for you, please go away. Thank you in advance. If this is exactly what you've been looking for, come on in and invite your friends. Let's get this body liberation party started. Yeah, they might try to put you in a box. Tell them that you don't accept. When the world is tripping out, tell them that you love yourself. Hey, hey, smile on them. Live your life just how you like it. It's your party. Negativity is not invited for my queer folk, my trans, people of color. Let your voice be heard. Look in the mirror and say that it's time to put me first. You were born to win. Head up high with confidence. This show is for everyone. So I thank you for tuning in. Let's go. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Body Liberation for All. We are so lucky to have Dr. Lindo Bacon with us today. Dr. Bacon has already done a lot of work around health at every size and really helping convey to people who are working in healthcare the damage that fat phobia does to the patients that they are seeking to help. In their last book, Body Respect, they really looked at the intersections of systemic problems that exacerbate the stress of individual people and how oversimplified our view of health is when we continually blame the individual for behavioral things as though there are no other factors at play. But this book, Radical Belonging, is so next level. Dr. Bacon does a beautiful job of blending their personal story as a non-binary person with all of the other research they've done around how important belonging is to our ability to thrive as humans. So much of the experience that they lay out in the book is going to resonate because it is part of the universal human experience when you are being treated poorly or when you are not being given full permission to be yourself. This book is also a great introduction to some concepts that might be new to us because unfortunately, the role that minority stress plays in our lives is so under-focused on, so under-emphasized that this might be news to even those of us who are suffering from this stress. This interview is so full of wisdom that I know by the end of it, you are definitely going to be interested in reading more of their work. As you are going through this, if you have some feelings coming up for you, I would encourage you to jot them down so that you can dig deeper and look at those later on. Dr. Bacon mentioned so many things. This happens when you speak to someone who is wise and has done a lot of research around a topic. They will say something casually or quickly that is really, really profound. 
But so that you can enjoy the full conversation, just jot it down, revisit it later, make sure you get the book, then you can really dig into it. All right, let's get started. Thank you so much, Linda, for coming on the show. Dahlia, I'm really pleased to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I enjoy the book so much. It's so rare that I read something where I feel like I'm being seen or my experience is being addressed directly, especially when it comes to anything even remotely related to nutrition or healthcare. So this was definitely unique from that aspect. And just the start of the book was so captivating. And the way you shared your personal story, it was the perfect balance between it being all about the reader and you sharing your experience. How did you get to that point? Does this match where you thought the book was going when you started? Well, it's awesome to get that feedback. You know, I got to say, when I started writing the book, I had absolutely no idea what I was writing. The first version of the book wasn't actually a book for other people. It was my journal. And I felt like I was kind of writing about how difficult it was for me and how painful it was for me to cultivate a feeling of belonging. And so that was number one about what I was writing. On the other hand, I was also doing some other writing because I was a public speaker and I was doing a lot of trainings and I was teaching healthcare practitioners about how to deal with trauma and how oppression gets inside our bodies. And so I was looking at these issues from a very scientific perspective and trying to figure out how to help health professionals incorporate this in their work. So I had two separate pieces of writing going that were very different. And it took me a really long time to see that they were relevant to one another, that everything that I was teaching people were the steps that I had used to kind of heal myself from the pain that I had been. So the book then became a way of kind of writing myself out of my trauma. You know, I took my initial journal and looked at what I did to get to this place where I feel happy in my life. And I feel like I've got a lot of skills to deal with the pain of unbelonging and to find my sense of belonging. And then I was also able to weave in what I know from science to be true. So all of that stuff kind of coalesced. It felt like there were three separate books I had that I merged together and It's really exciting to me to know that it spoke to you, you know, that bringing in my personal experience, I think, would help me to bring the science alive. And that's something I'm really proud of in the book. Yeah, you absolutely nailed it. I love self-help, but then I also love how you explained what the limitations of self-help really are when you're dealing with systemic oppression. And that's something I never see addressed. And this year, I felt like my stress levels were through the roof. I'd gone to therapy in the past. And at the end, when I finished with what we felt like we were done, I felt like, did I go to therapy for being Black? Like, it seemed like that's what the ongoing issues were centered around, were microaggressions that I never processed. And I initially went because I was just so angry and short-tempered and I felt 
so reactive and couldn't understand what the problem was. And I thought, well, my childhood was fine. My parents were nice to me. Like, what's wrong? But I dealt with a therapist who had that lens, that trauma-informed lens. And they're like, yeah, this is a normal reaction to people treating you like trash all the time. Maybe you don't really process it every day. But for some reason, now you've got the space to deal with it and it's all coming down on you. But this year, with COVID and all this time and silence, me and everyone I know is going, I mean, just really going through it. It's like the first time a lot of us have really had to process it. So you spoke about mindfulness in the book and meditation being a helpful practice for some people, but not all. And I'd never heard anyone address that before. I've wanted to meditate and I've just struggled because I felt like if I gave that much room, that much silence, I don't know. I thought every trauma was going to come bursting out of me and I was just going to need to be committed or something. How did you come to some of these realizations? Because I really don't see them other places. Is this just from the way you're able to understand research beyond just reading, you know, the outcomes at the end or the discussion section? How did you understand all of this? It seems like on your own. Well, first off, I want to say that I'm not so sure that there's really a whole lot in this book that's original. I'm drawing on a history of reading other people and incorporating their work. And I think, you know, it's basically what's original is just my expression and way of bringing it together. I think that one of the reasons why we're not reading about this enough is the big issue that is going on in the world right now. And that's that we're so accustomed to hearing everything from the dominant perspective and not hearing marginalized voices. And so we're not really hearing what's really going on in the world. As you and I are speaking right now, issues of systemic racism are front and center. We're in the midst of a lot of protests right now. And it's not like racism is new. These issues have been going around for a long time, but what's different is we're talking about them and it's front and center. And I think that when, like meditation, for example, people have been talking about that for a long time, but in the United States, the way meditation gets discussed, it's been people of privilege that have been talking about it even though its traditions and roots are really quite different from that. But it's white wealthy people that are kind of the center of the meditation movement right now. So I think what happens is there's a lot that gets lost when things always come from the center and not from the margins. So meditation then gets used to help rich, wealthy people feel better about themselves and navigate their worlds. And that's wonderful. There's value in that for them, right? And then there's also a lot that gets lost in that experience and that they don't have access to because it's a very narrow view of what meditation could be. But if you look, there are a lot of other traditions of meditations. Like I think about and I know I'm going to not do well in the pronunciation here because I've only seen it in writing, but Thich Nhat Hanh has done some beautiful work in writing talking about how meditation is linked to liberation and that 
it's got to help us connect to suffering and do something about it as opposed to just trying to passively feel happier in our lives. It's got to help us engage with the world instead of helping us to just feel better about ourselves within that world. So I think that's the secret right now is that we're learning that if we want to write anything about self-help, we've got to help people to make the connections to how their personal experience is meaningful because of who they are and how they're treated in the world. And that's what I tried to do in the book. And even though in many ways I come from privilege, like white privilege, for example, I put a focus on looking at my experience of marginalization in the world, my gender identity, my sexual orientation, and looked at the ways in which I feel like I'm not given respect or truly valued in the world and how that informs how I look at the world and how also I can take back the power that's been taken away from me. And what we learn when we start to look at, say, the biology of all of this is that those experiences in the world of not being treated well, they biologically embed in us. They make us scared and fearful. They make us like more protective. So we're always vigilant and not trusting people. There's a lot of things that biologically wire into us from our experiences of unbelonging. And similarly, we're not all marginalized. We also have experiences where we have a lot of power and privilege and that wires into us too and gives us a certain amount of protection as well. And so all of us have this unique experience. And for some of us, those experiences of marginalization are really quite intense. We might have multiple intersecting identities that have made life much harder for us. We haven't been given the resources or support. And then this is kind of long-winded and roundabout, but to get back to your question, you put anybody in an environment where the stress levels are up, like now, everybody's pretty stressed in this COVID environment where there's so much more that is stressing us out and we don't have access to all of the resources that usually we rely on, you know, we can't just go see a friend as easily as we could in the past. We can't as easily go out for exercise as we used to be able to, you know, everything becomes a lot more complicated. And what that means is, of course, we're all going to be on edge. And, you know, people are much more apt to be reaching for the alcohol and the drugs because we don't have access to the usual things that we have that take care of us. So yeah, these are troubled times and I have a lot of compassion for what everybody's going through right now. And, you know, I guess I just like want to sound out that if you're having a hard time, of course, that doesn't mean that there's anything particular about you that's messed up. That just means you're a vulnerable person in a vulnerable time right now. And I just want to offer up some compassion to all of us for 
how hard it is to try to figure out how to adapt to these challenging times. Absolutely. And I like that you mentioned that over and over, how important self-compassion is. But when it feels scary for somebody to start opening up because we are hypervigilant, we are maybe tending to not trust people because of previous trauma, how do you recommend someone first start? And what does offering yourself self-compassion even look like if you've never done that before? Right. Okay. So there are a few questions in that. So let's make sure that I get back to the self-compassion aspect of it. But first, let me deal with the earlier aspect of the question, which is to say that I want to keep coming back to the notion of how difficult it is to be a human. (laughs) That like we can't make it in this world on our own. Humans are biologically wired to need connection. And, you know, I was actually surprised when I looked into the research to find out like how true this is that, for example, there's been research that shows that when people get rejected from playing in games, that it lights up the same areas of the brain that getting physically hurt does. So that emotions hurt in the same way that physical stuff can. The research actually blew me away and even showed that Tylenol can relieve emotional pain. That is shocking. Which just blew me away to show that, you know, again, it acts on the same centers in the brain. So to be a temporary fix. Now, I'm not suggesting that everybody go out and take Tylenol right now. That's not really going to help us in our current situation. But what I am suggesting is to recognize that if you're hurting right now, that's not because it's something particular to you. Like you're not messed up. You're just human. And one of the beauties of that is recognizing then that because you're not alone in that, one of the best ways you could get help in all of this is to reach out to other people. And it's not like someone else can take it away. I can't take away your pain for you. But what I can do is sit with you while you're in pain and help you to just kind of weather it. Just holding someone's hand when they're hurting can help to release biological chemicals inside them, hormones, to help them to feel a little bit better. So human connection is helpful. And in this age of COVID, obviously, we can't reach out to someone as physically as we used to be able to. But we can certainly talk to people, you know, through the internet and through phones and let them know we love them and hear them out, just listening to other people. All of those things can be really valuable. And Continuing on that theme, one of the things you had mentioned early on is that you feel like in therapy, what you were looking for was that a lot of your problems stemmed from how you were being treated as a Black person in the world. And I think that this is important too, is reaching out to other people who look like us and have similar experiences, help us to recognize that Again, the problem is not just because of us. The problem is because of how people treat people like us. And the more you can recognize that the problem is out there as opposed to you, it's not that it makes it go away 
I mean, racism still hurts, but it helps you to shift the problem more to the culture and take it away from being about you. You still feel it, but it's not because you're a problem. And I think that that little shift is really meaningful for people and can help them to weather things a little bit better. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Community has meant everything. And it really troubles me to think about how many vulnerable LGBTQIA plus people are cut off from their families or established community right as they're realizing their identity or coming to the point that they're no longer willing to compromise on being open and out. And it's just so hurtful to even think about people having to go through that. But I know it's such a common experience in the queer community. This episode is brought to you by the Body Liberation for All community. If you are tired of digging through self-help resources for things that actually apply to your lived experience, I've got you covered. The Body Liberation for All community is 100% centered on LGBTQIA plus and BIPOC identities. Every resource that you will find there was created with you in mind. There are so many things that are unique to the queer and the person of color experience that are not being addressed in any other wellness circles. This is where you need to be to find resources crafted with your experience in mind that will help you live the happiest, most fulfilled version of your life. If you'd like to learn more, just visit community.daliakinsey.com. The link is in the show notes. So you were raised in a different time, but still, it seems like people were still aware that you were not straight, even when you were young and tried to, I guess, save you from however difficult they thought your life would be if you were going to truly be yourself. As an adult and a professional, did you have anxiety about fully coming out as a non-binary person after having written like under your dead name and had a full career under the dead name? Or were you already to the point that you knew compromising was just not an option and you were just ready? It's interesting to hear you speak about that in the past tense. And like the assumption is I'm comfortable with this Uh going out into the world and I'm not, I'm scared at the same time as I'm very excited. I'm used to getting negative judgment from people and it still hurts. I'm not beyond that, that no matter how much I love myself, no matter how comfortable I am in my identity, no matter how big of a community I have around me that supports and loves me, I still get hurt when I read, you know, like as a public figure right now, I'm being discussed, you know, like this morning I looked at on Reddit and there's a hundred people that are discussing whether or not I have a penis. And the idea is to shame me. So I, on the one hand, can recognize that, you know, the problem is in them. And it just makes me sad that, like, 
why can't everybody just love and appreciate me? Right. And like, this is about their judgments of a particular person. This isn't about them knowing me personally. And how sad it is that all of us are subject to homophobia, to racism, to transphobia. And we're not immune to, like, these people have power over us, right? There are actually laws that get in the way of, you know, my full participation in the world. When I go out in the world, I can't be promised that I'm always going to have easy access to a bathroom. You know, like I've been harassed for walking into a woman's bathroom when I only had these binary options. So like the world is not always going to accommodate us. And that's the sad fact, no matter how confident and secure we feel in the world that we've created for ourselves. Now, I should say that I have enormous privilege in the world. And so I can walk into a bathroom despite the ugly comments I might get. I don't fear that I'm going to get murdered. Other trans folks certainly have that fear, and it's a legitimate fear because, you know, trans people of color in particular are getting murdered just for existing. So the fear that people have in the world, to some extent, it's true. It's based on reality. And none of us can really know to what extent our fear is going to get legitimized and isn't, you know? So on the one hand, if somebody is scared to come out, I really want to support and encourage them in being thoughtful about them because some of the things they're scared of might really be true, right? The world isn't safe right now. And for other people, That's a message that they got, but the world that they've created for themselves may be sufficiently safe that if they came out, they would feel the love and appreciation that they're looking for. And I'd hate for people to miss out on that possibility because of fear. And it's not easy figuring out when protection is necessary and helpful. And when that protection actually is backfiring, you know, when hiding yourself means that you're denying the love and appreciation and being seen that you deserve and that we all need in our world. None of that stuff is easy. And I just want to like honor the fact that we all have to be thoughtful about the choices that we make. And to come back to a question you had asked about me personally in writing the book, I finally hit the point where I realized that it's too painful for me not to be seen in the world. I am so tired of those emails I'm getting on these group emails where people address us as ladies and just make the assumption that they're seeing me. Like I want to be part of their world. And I want them to see me like I don't want to pretend to be something I'm not. It's just no fun. There's no connection there. And in the example of that email list that I just used, these are all caring, thoughtful people. And my hit is that if they all knew me as non-binary, they would still accept me in their world. Like, I'm sorry that they feel like they needed to assume that about me, right? 
And I want to educate them and help them to move to this place where they're not making assumptions about other people so that they could have seen me in the first place. Right. So I'm working on that, you know, helping all of us to learn how to see beyond the gender binary and not automatically put people into those boxes. And at the same time, you know, I'm also recognizing that I can also support them and just help them to see me, right? And proactively let them know, hey, you know, I'm not comfortable with that. I'm non-binary. And having done that, I know they're going to let me into their world, that they're going to apologize and there's going to be learning there. So the book also is my kind of coming out to all of those people who have seen me publicly. Like, it's not as if I've ever been in the closet. Everybody knows me, you know, knows my gender identity. But for the people that have only seen me in this public persona and have been projecting women onto me for so long, it is a more public coming out. And I'm both thrilled at the opportunity to be seen. And yes, I'm also at the same time scared because I know I'm going to get the rejection and the judgment from some people as well. Yeah. And and that's a hard thing to deal with because I love when you talk about the science of how necessary belongingness is for us to really thrive. And in that rat study, that just like, that was so fascinating to me, the concept of environment playing a larger role and whether or not you're vulnerable to addiction or whether or not you just need other tools to self-soothe if you don't have a community that you're belonging to and connecting to. First of all, I didn't know rats were social. I guess I probably should have known that. But that just was so interesting. The way you explain and validate these things that maybe we had some inkling that they were true, but to have it validated. I think the book is going to be so powerful for people who have not been validated in that way or who maybe have been wondering, is it worth the risk of being fully out? And even if they are in a safe environment, wondering how they feel about the rejection aspect, knowing the payoff is being able to be seen and being able to belong in a way that isn't possible when you have to hide a part of yourself could really tip people to deciding like they want to be out. I know for me, because I'm in a straight passing relationship and everyone loves to assume if you're with someone who appears to be opposite gender, that you must be straight. And people my age and older tend to think that bisexuality is not real, even though it is. And I just wonder like, well, should I even, does it matter? Is it important? And just as things have progressed after George Floyd's death, even, I just felt something shift that I no longer want to welcome people into my circle, into my life that can't fully accept me, that can't accept that I'm very concerned about violence against trans Black women in this area and everywhere, obviously, but in my community in particular to make it clear to people that I'm not just an ally. This is also my community. And I think it's important for people who just for, I I just don't want to be in the closet. It's not for me. And it makes me nervous wondering like, when is the next gut punch coming? But for me, just connecting with other queer folks has already been worth it. 
to feel like that connection. We're all having different experiences, but everybody's had that experience of rejection and working through that enough to where you can seek out community with people who will accept you fully. It's also become surprisingly clear to me that I didn't know how much I was missing by just passively participating in other people's world, that by trying to make it comfortable for them and not kind of confronting our difference, when that was my normal, that's all I knew. But now that, for example, I've publicly changed my name to Lindo, and so that's opened up the conversation where people are asking questions and I've shared my story with many people of how Linda means beautiful and the A at the end is a feminized ending. And that's because that's what my parents wanted for me in the world, right? They wanted this beautiful human being and knew that girls got their currency from beauty and wanted me to be valued and appreciated. And the name never sat well for me mostly because of the femininity of it all, that it just never felt right. And also valuing physical beauty as a defining trait never felt comfortable to me. And people can read my book to get the full story, but when somebody bestowed on me the name Lindo, which is the masculinized ending, and when they also expressed the idea that the word still means beautiful, but it conveys more of a beautiful essence as opposed to physical beauty when you masculinize the ending. Like it felt like here I was messing with both constructions of gender and of beauty. And it felt so right. And the name really resonated for me. And anyway, but since claiming that name, it forces people to do a little bit more of a double take and either to ask questions or to at least, you know, if they're familiar with the gender endings from Spanish or Portuguese, they might know. But anyway, it forces the conversation to happen and it's making it a lot easier for me to be seen in the world. And like, there's this sense of relief, mm. you know, like I never wanted to hide myself. It was the assumptions other people were making and now it's a little bit less easy for them to make those assumptions with the name change. And it's interesting being on the non-binary, you know, because when people are like the word trans, as you probably know, many people use it as kind of an umbrella term to refer to anybody whose gender identity differs from the one that they were assigned at birth. So I'm using it as an umbrella term. But most people expect that trans people are people that cross over, right? And if I were taking hormones, for example, and, you know, like my face were more masculinized, it might be easier for people to see me in a different way because there's just so many assumptions about people's looks and what that might mean for their gender identity. And so the more ways that I can challenge people's conceptions, right? Like the name gives them something to hold on to that says, hey, you know, like what they're seeing might be a little bit different than what they project onto it, right? So we all get to choose what kind of gender presentation we want. Like I want to make sure my gender presentation is always about 
me, me expressing who I am, as opposed to me grabbing onto an expression to make anybody else see me the way I want to be seen. And that's hard. I imagine it feels great. It does. It feels, you know, all the the steps I'm taking are making me feel more and more excited. And while we're recording this right now, the book is not yet released, but I am just so excited for the day to take this next public step. Yeah. Oh, I'm excited for you. When I even saw that the name had changed on your site, I was like, ooh, I wonder what else is coming back. I was excited to see it. Because I think, especially in dietetics and nutrition, so many people idolize you. And I feel like you being out as someone who doesn't fit that mythical norm or mythic norm is going to be so powerful with people working in healthcare who have been trying on the Hayes approach and been trying on concept of body positivity in a way that kind of falls flat for marginalized people. I think this could really, I know that it's going to be a resource that causes a shift and a ripple out because so many people who interact with so many people in a care setting are going to read it and be affected by it. I hope that that's true. And I also want to take it a step further than that, because I think that just me being out in the world is a small part of the picture. I think a much larger part of the picture is that the analysis that I and other people have done about how not being seen is directly linked to the kinds of recommendations we can make about nutrition and eating and how to navigate the world for people. Because, for example, not being seen for my gender identity was a really huge part of my eating disorder. Like the narrative that's told in eating disorders is that most women have eating disorders because they're trying to find their power as women. And they realize that their power is in attractiveness. And so they're trying to achieve this perfect body. And you know that whole story. Everybody's yeah. quite familiar with it. And if we believe that about everybody, then there's a pretty narrow treatment that gets prescribed around that. But that wasn't my experience. I mean, it wasn't food problems didn't stem from like trying to grab onto this cultural idea of femininity. It had a lot more to do with trying to find my masculinity that as soon as I was getting breasts and hips, it was kind of confirming to the world that I was a woman, which was not how I felt about myself, right? And that was really lodged in my eating disorder. So all of the typical ways that they were telling me that I was supposed to heal from my eating disorders just made the eating disorder much more firmly entrenched. And it was more when people started to see the real roots of who I was, right? That that gave me access to another view. And that's what I want nutrition professionals to become more aware of, that you can't just come up with this idea that, oh, if everybody felt better about their bodies or if everybody adopted intuitive eating, that these are healthful ways because they're not. 
sure, intuitive eating can help certain people, right? But that's certainly not going to be helpful for somebody, for example, who's living in poverty and doesn't have access to all the food that they want, when they want, and what they want, right? If you want to be a good dietitian, what you have to do is you have to see people for who they are and start from their personal experience. And that's going to help you to figure out what's going to be valuable advice for moving forward and for navigating their eating disorder. And so I think that one of the big messages that I hope that people get from this is that all of the traditional ideas that we've looked at from healthcare have pretty much come from the perspective of treating people with dominant identities. And that the more we see people and their experiences, the more we can see a lot of other possibilities for dealing with all of the problems that we've been having around eating disorders. And what we also recognize is that this is helpful for people with dominant identities too. You know, that just telling people to eat intuitively, for example, even if that might be more accessible to somebody who's got a lot of power and privilege in the world, it still doesn't address all of the challenges of what it means to have their particular body. And so the more we learn about all of the different ways that we navigate in the world, the more possibilities we have to help everybody heal. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much for coming on. The book gave me hope to see how transparent you were about your own unconscious bias, how you continually work to improve, even like the caveats at the bot, like in the footnotes, explaining that you've thought beyond just putting something out there that could be misinterpreted and trying to really make everybody feel seen. It was just beautifully done. I can't wait to see, you know, what comes after this, like maybe trainings or something, because dietetics needs a lot of help, as do a lot of fields of people who are really invested in their bias and invested in white and hetero supremacy, and it's hurting a lot of people. So it's really refreshing to see an academic with all of this research explain to us how we're not really helping anyone if we refuse to acknowledge these systemic issues. Thanks. That's really sweet. And I'm glad that all those points are important to you. And I'm just so glad too to see the kind of work that you're doing in the world to help spread this message and give people hope. So thank you. Thank you. I'm not even going to ask if you enjoyed that interview as much as I did, because I know that you did. If you are my people, there's no way that didn't resonate with you. I'm just so excited for them right now. I love how transparent they were about the fact that you may still feel the fear when you are putting yourself out there, when you are fully exposing your true identity and showing up fully in the world. I also love how considerate and just wise and conscientious they are when it comes to awareness that it isn't going to be safe for everyone to come out and that people have to navigate those choices on their own. 
but that a lot of us are in communities or stages in our lives where we've created a safe space for ourselves and perhaps old trauma and fear keeps us from fully showing up. I know that was my issue was a lot of things based on old fear that felt so, so real that as an adult paying my own bills with a partner who already knows all of my identities, they weren't actually a threat to my ability to survive. But trauma is real. And sometimes the cages we create for ourselves in our minds are the most powerful. And we shouldn't shame ourselves over doing that. And we shouldn't even get mad at our brain for creating these cells. It's meant to protect us. But sometimes you really have to do some introspection to try and discern the difference between real present danger and historical trauma that's controlling you now. I am so much happier, fully out. I feel like it's so much easier to get work done even. It is so beyond comprehension how much energy maintaining a persona that is not your own takes. And I've heard this from trans folks and binary folks, maintaining that binary persona that was not their own was so draining to an extent that they could not even conceive of how much energy they were losing to it until they stopped. And the lightness and the ability to move through time and space was so refreshing that it also helped support them as they dealt with pushback from people who didn't want to fully accept them. Dr. Bacon gave us a lot to think about today. I would love to hear your feedback. Honestly, I want to hear what you think once you finish the book. I will have the link to the book in the show notes. It is 110% worth your time. I don't even read tangible like books that you hold anymore, but this one was so full of goodies that I feel like you're going to want the physical book and a highlighter. The references are really rich as well. This is a great jumping off point to get to a lot of other really good meaty concepts. I'm going to leave you some room to think about the episode on your own instead of continuing to gush about how much I just adored this book. Remember that you can find me on Instagram under Dahlia Kinsey RD and on TikTok with the same handle. I've recently decided I'm just going to hang up Facebook. I say it like it was my idea. I got locked out of my own business page and I just decided I'm over it for real this time. I'm still hanging out there under my personal profile. Anybody who wants to be my friend, you are welcome to befriend me there, but be warned that there's a lot of silliness that may happen on the personal profile that I probably wouldn't do elsewhere because people may not have as much patience with my cat videos in other places. But if you want to be buddies, let's be buddies. And also remember that if you want one-on-one coaching, I have spots available right now. And the group coaching, which really is my favorite thing because community is so important, still has spots available as well. You just want to visit the main website. That's DahliaKinsey.com and go to the community section. That is 
where you can access the group coaching program. If you just want more details about it, feel free to reach out to me for a discovery call. I will have that information in the links as well. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me. I will see you next time. Yeah, they might try to put you in a box. Tell them that you don't accept. When the world is tripping out, tell them that you love yourself. Hey, hey, smile on them. Live your life just how you like it. It's your party. Negativity is not invited. For my queer folk, my trans, people of color, let your voice be heard. Look in the mirror and say that it's time to put me first. You were born to win. Head up high with confidence. This show is for everyone. So I thank you for tuning in. Let's go.